0: Welcome to The Field. I'm your host, Zoe Pallier, and this week I'm so happy to be sitting down with Chris Corshane. Chris comes from Manitoba, one of Canada's prairie provinces. Growing up, his mother, an Indian residential school survivor, was in and out of incarceration. Learning from his surroundings and doing what he needed to do to survive, Chris spent much of his adolescence in and out of incarceration as well. It was when he had his son that he ultimately determined to turn his life around. He shares about his experience of gang culture in Winnipeg in the 90s, about the impact of residential schools on his mother and in turn on his upbringing, and about what it meant for him to get the chance to turn his life around and to have a positive impact on the community he came from. Chris and I had a great chat after the interview. We talked about youth criminal diversion and the importance of programming and gang intervention for young people, about the work of Peacebuilders, an organization founded by my mom about 20 years ago that does this work in Toronto. I really enjoyed our chat and we had it recorded, so we've added it at the end. If you want to have a listen, stick around. Season one of The Field is brought to you by Castles, Brock and Blackwell. Castles has one of the largest business law practices in Canada and is a market leader serving all sectors for over 130 years. As part of Castle's commitment to investing in local businesses that face systemic challenges accessing capital, they recently awarded a series of four financial grants with matching pro bono commitments to black-owned small businesses in the Calgary region. You can learn more about these grants and castles by visiting castles.com or on Twitter at Castles, C-A-S-S-E-L-S. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us in the field.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Can you start by telling us just a little bit about your background and about growing up?
1: Well, I was uh, I was kind of born and raised in Winnipeg. I, I went to the reserve for a while when I was younger, but I came back to Winnipeg when I was about ten, turning eleven. Yeah, I moved here when I was eleven with uh, my grandfather and my uh, my mother.
0: And what was life like?
1: Man, it was the nineties. So you know it was the height of uh the height of gangsterism in Winnipeg. Remember back when I was a kid, that was the first thought you had coming to Winnipeg is you're either a gangster or a stick a kid or something.
0: <laughs> so what was that like? If you can kind of take us back to that time, what did it mean to be at the sort of peak of uh gangster culture in Winnipeg?
1: Oh wow. Yeah came to the city and I was living with my uh, my mother she's a residential school survivor and uh, I guess she just got out of the penitentiary for armed robbery she served a bunch of years and then uh, yeah I guess I moved to the city and I know it was like you'd see it everywhere you'd see people hustling big crews and they'd all be repping their colors and then when moved in with my mom she was, like, deep into it. She had a lot of friends that, uh, a lot of friends that uh, that were involved in gangs. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you, just for anyone who's listening who isn't Canadian and doesn't know this history, do you mind just telling us a little bit about residential schools?
1: Residential schools? Well, I guess they were, they were put here to, I guess it was a way of integrating First Nation people into, I do to say it like, White society, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't know how to else how else to explain it.
0: Yeah, well, uh, you tell me if I'm uh, if I'm getting this right. But essentially, it was this whole uh, scheme of taking uh, children away from First Nations families and putting them into these sort of like residential boarding schools that were intended to assimilate them into you know white European culture, yeah. and and ultimately. There was no input or say from the First Nations families who these children were taken from. And there was a lot of abuse and neglect and a lot of really awful things that went on in residential schools. And so, you know, being a first uh, residential school survivor, your mom, my guess is, probably lived through and experienced a lot of trauma. And so what you're talking about in terms of her coming out of that was, I'm sure, in part a result or in part or largely a result of her experience there.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, definitely, because there's a lot of things that she didn't speak of. Mm-hmm. Like I could see now I could see it. Why I grew up the way I grew up, because like I can see what the cause of it is now. It's like she suffered a lot. I know that I broke her,
0: mm-hmm. her spirit. Yeah.
1: She she was there for seven years and she was just a little kid and things they they did to her she she's never shared, but you know she was like one of the highest uh, highest paid survivors because of the experience she suffered.
0: And what was the impact on you of both kind of the aftermath of that trauma for her and then the lifestyle that she was living as you were growing up?
1: Well, it totally crippled her, eh? I mean she couldn't, um, well, she'd get in and out of trouble because, I guess, to numb her pain, so she would, um, She would like, steal, rob, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Everything that comes with it. Like, mm-hmm. She was straight from the north side of Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's, like, it's a hardcore area for the city. And she grew up in the thickness of it, I mean. And the only way she could provide for herself or provide for me was to teach me But she knows, like, was 11 years old, and I started shoplifting and just to be able to get food other than waiting for the food bank to open every two weeks. And then, um, yeah, I mean, she always wanted to be under the influence of something because I guess it was never pain. I can see it now, but when I was growing up, I couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I didn't know why. Why are we living like this? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Why do we have to do this in order to, to get food? Why do we have to live this way? Why are we living this way? And I didn't know why, where it was coming from, you know? Yeah. I didn't understand it, but I just understood that the life that she was showing me was, it was like, it was something to be proud of for her. Like, she felt a real family. She felt love and stuff like that in her groups as she was with. sense of security somebody that can't hurt her I think that's why she got into that type of life because Hmm. she was sort of untouchable
0: so you started you know learning to shoplift around the age of 11 and what was your first interaction with the criminal justice system
1: oh I uh I think I was about 12 years old or 11 and uh I got thrown in uh a holding cell for the weekend because I, I broke into my old house that my grandmother lived in, but I didn't know she she moved from there because of the divorce from her and my grandfather. And that's why I moved to the city because I was living in the reserve with my grandparents, but they, they divorced.
0: And after that time in the holding cell... What was your relationship with the system from from then on?
1: After that, uh, well, I kept on doing what I was doing to su- survive. Mm-hmm. So that would be breaking and entering, stealing, robbery, stuff like that. But I started going to use youth center when I was about 13, 14. And then, uh, like, assault causing bodily harm, concealed weapon, stealing, stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. Death Thunders, Death Dozers. And uh, I grew up in, in and out of there because it was better than home. Mm-hmm. At least I got to eat three square meals there. It was different. It was, It's almost like a home for me. Like, it didn't matter if I went
0: there. Yeah, it sounds like it almost kind of became your, like, there was a sense of community there, maybe.
1: Yeah, well, I all my friends were there. My cousin's there. You see them through the windows, across the field.
0: And then, what was the last? What was the last time? And what changed?
1: Well, last time I, I got charged was double armed robbery. This guy's with intent, and then uh, stayed in jail for a while. I Was about to go to trial, and then I pleaded out to uh, two years less a day because the judge seeing that I wasn't really person of violence i was more of a person of addiction because every time i got arrested i was like intoxicated like hammered and and drunk and then uh yeah i had my son and i got out you know i was trying not to go back to the life that i knew on how to provide myself because i grew up like that my mom had me and my twin sister Well, she was incarcerated. And, you know, that's how I lived with my grandparents. And, yeah, and then I did my time. I got out and I got a son. I don't want him to live life the way I live life, like bits and parts. The way I see my family, like going in and out of jail. I see my cousins, they'd be this tall, they'd be this tall. Be, you know, mm-hmm. They're adults all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. I didn't want that kind of life for my child. So what do I do, man? What do I do?
0: Yeah. And after all of that time in and out of the system and that being the pattern, what was it like coming out, knowing that you wanted things to be different and trying to change that pattern?
1: Man, it was hard because when I got out, my gang life followed me, eh? Mm Mm-hmm. I had to do a lot of talking. There's a lot of meetings. But eventually I got out, and then there's no support systems for me. And it's like, what do I do? So I got in contact with my probation officer, something I've never done before, like, because it, it didn't matter to me. But when I had my son, I, I knew I didn't want to get back into criminal activity because like can't just let life repeat itself. Mm-hmm. So Asked my probation officer, I said, hey, Bill, I'm a 24-year-old <laughs> uh, career criminal, ex-con, and I have a child, and I'm trying to change my life. Uh, how do I go about it? Like, What do I do? I mean, obviously, nobody wants me because I'm an ex-con. I didn't know that there was, there was places out there that I gave people chances. And there's a lot of people that don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's why they continue to cycle. So she gave me um, this number to call. She said, She has a client that has the same kind of history as me. And he went to this place and he got a six month certificate. It's called Building Urban Industries for Local Development, Winnipeg here. So I gave him a call and I said, Yo, hey, I just got out. I'm on probation. They said, what have you been charged with? I told them I've been charged with a double-armed robbery, but I paid my debt to society with my life. I did my time. Now I'm on probation. I got a kid. Now I know what to do. I'm I'm not really good at anything. I don't got any experience on anything, aside from criminal activity and what comes with it. And they said, well, come see us on Monday. And this was a Friday. Come see us on Monday and uh, we'll talk more. And that was like the beginning of a change. I never felt that before, you know, like okay, well, come on down, we'll give you an interview. Mm -hmm. When I was 24 years old,
0: someone just believing in you and being willing to give you that chance,
1: yeah. I was like, wow, it's like okay, then, so yeah and when was that that was uh june of 2008 june of 2008 i started there and um wow yeah it's like there was me and like nine other people there's a guy named sean loney there and lucas stewart uh, elmer Lamy robert Rusin. it's like some really amazing people man and then uh we did the interview they said uh and you come in next week? And I was like, yeah. And then I was working there for about six months because their, their program at the time was a pilot project. So they're trying to develop it into what it is now. Eh? So yeah, I get the job and I'm working with these guys and we're building within the inner community, like the core area. We're doing eco-energy retrofits to uh, help homeowners save money on their utility bills, put some money in their pocket so they can buy things that they really need, like pampers, milk, food, you know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there was this guy there, Elmer. He was a Red Seal carpenter. And he had uh, a great education he never made to high school. But uh, he worked all his life, and he challenged the system and got his grandfather ticket where you go for the uh, IP exam for your master's in carpentry. And he got it because he was really good with math, but he never got to uh, high school or finish it. But like he had to work while he was a kid. He came from a similar area to my background, like a big family on the res, stuff like that. And uh, I said, you got grade A education? It's like, yeah. And I was like, wow, I got grade 9. <laughs> so uh it's like i like doing what uh what you're teaching me so how do i become like you it's like well you gotta get into an apprenticeship it's like really what's that and he told me what it was so uh there was this guy who was uh he was the director his name sean loney and, uh, my six months was coming up i was looking for things to do with this nonprofit organization to help people in the inner city, people like me and immigrants and people who don't get chances when you're trying to get a job. Right. Mm-hmm. So says, Hey, Chris, come in the office. Like, yep. What's up?" it's all like your time's coming up here. What's going on? What do you want to do with yourself after this? Say, I want to become a carpenter, man. I mean, uh, and I told him a little bit about Elmer's story. I'd like to do that. He's like, okay. So we talked, and he found me a school to go to that provided uh, level one accreditation for carpentry. And then, uh, yeah, I got my high school diploma. I had to go get my GED. So I got my GED, and then I got my level one carpentry and went back to work. And I went from working I think it was 725 when I left an hour and when I got back I was making $18 an hour it was crazy I couldn't believe it I didn't I didn't know person like me was capable of doing something like that especially like the work I was doing I was helping people that had low income and I'm helping them save money and it's for the inner city community thought that was so cool because I'm from the inner city community you know (laughs) it was like you know I felt like sort of like a hero because I could help you know Mm -hmm.
0: what did that do for you to be able to have such a sense of pride in what you were doing
1: wow man you know how I felt it was it was crazy it was it's like I never had that feeling before like the senses of joy that I had prior to that were like right on. I got like a thousand dollar score. Right? Oh yeah, man. I made this much money off the of hustling, whatever, like that. And then to have like I didn't get paid much when I first started, but the work I was doing it made me feel something something great on the inside. Like I was giving back. And then the other job that I went to was a sister company of this job that I I came from. So I became a supervisor after uh, five years of hard work and uh, I became a supervisor for Manitoba Green Retrofit. Now these guys, Sean Loney helped change. I mean, start this company and it was uh, it was helping like Winnipeg Regional Health Association when they started their program and to help get homeless people off the street and into housing. So they wouldn't have to be homeless in the streets. So I started um, I started renovating their houses, like obviously they're they're troubled from addictions and some have have handicaps because of the cause of drugs, you know, like Schizophrenia, drug-induced schizophrenia, stuff like that. So they tend to break their house up a little or stuff like that. But I would go there and I'd repair these houses and I'd clean these houses for but all these were these are homeless people like doing something for them. Nobody's giving these people a chance and it felt good helping them, but no one else helps them. Mm-hmm. And then and then when I got into that job, I was like, wow. I was like, I can't believe it. I can help these people that no one even look at. You know what I mean? Like, damn oh, it. But it felt really wonderful, like helping. I wasn't getting paid much, but man, it was worth it, the feeling you would have. And these people would be so happy that you're helping them and fixing them and having conversations with them, you know, giving them an ear for listening and stuff, you know, It it was quite the experience.
0: Definitely. And what you're doing is incredible in the way that you're giving back. And what I also can get from you is how important the opportunity was that was given to you, the opportunity to do something, to change your life. And I'm curious from your perspective, what do we as a society need to do better to support people who are returning to the community from incarceration?
1: To not pass judgment based off of their, their past. I mean, all you know, ex-cons are just regular people. They're, they're just regular people that had a very unfortunate misfortune happen to them, Prevent the that happened that maybe somehow, some way couldn't be avoided in life because of it where they come from or experiences they had or or things they don't know about that could help them. I mean, look what I can do. I mean, there's a thousand Chris Cushanes that live right beside me here in the hood. They don't even know that they can change and help their society for the better. You know, they don't realize that. But when I was, when I was working for these nonprofit organizations, I would see them in the streets because that's where I would work, right? And they would know me. And like I said, I was, when I got out, I was in the thickness of it. And it was hard to avoid these people and avoid this life. But they'd be like, how did you do it? And I was all like, well, I told them about and I said, they you're willing to give people a shot as long as they show up, that's the hardest part it, showing up. And there's a lot of cons like me. People shouldn't judge him just because of the events that happened. I mean, as long as you're willing to, to repay a debt, especially with your life, I mean, people are people, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all equal. No one's better than anyone. And if people were to give ex-cons a chance, I think they'd be very surprised on how they can help this world for the better. I mean, look at me now. I'm an apprentice carpenter again. I had to start over because my ticket expired the first time, but right now I'm an apprentice carpenter, and I'm working all over Canada in First Nation communities, and I build schools for children because it's a kindergarten to grade 8, these schools that I build, and I build water treatment plants. It's like fresh water for communities that have to boil their water half hour just to have a bath or clean themselves or drink. And I'm building nursing stations. I mean, I'm helping this whole country for the better. And look where I came from. Look at the lives that I changed. The ex-cons that I told about this, how to do it, how to change your life. I mean, people will give you a shot out there. You just have to find it. I know it takes a long time and it's hard. It's a hard process, but I feel like I've I've affected a lot of lives and I continue doing my part to help society, you know? I mean, ex-cons, ex-cons can be normal people too. If, I'm sorry, I'm just uh, feel a little emotional here.
0: Yeah, I hear you because you have so much to offer and look at the way that you're impacting the world around you because somebody was willing to give you a chance and our alternative is not to give you a chance and not to see something in you that you maybe hadn't even seen in yourself yet and you know the revolving door continues
1: yeah you know um i come from I come from below the gutter man I come from inside the air. and I, I know I come from a troubled past and I know I've done wrong, but I paid for it with my life. And that a person gave me a shot. Look what I did with it. I, I spent more than half my life in prison at that time from when I was 11 years old, 13 years old, till I was 24 years old. I helped start the first social enterprise in Canada to help immigrants and low-income families and I helped start the first one with a video I did with my life and I helped so many communities across this this country they they came and replicated the company that Sean Loney helped develop and they spread it across this nation in their core areas. And if I can do that, if I if ex con ex-gang member, you know come from the streets from the gutter come to be to become a good tax paying citizen somebody that you know helps society benefit from the things that I do to getting my license you know to graduate in high school to graduating college you know I'm a college graduate I just graduated last year February 2020 like Congratulations! Yeah, like I can't believe the things that people like me are capable of. Give people a chance, Mm man. Like you say, a revolving door, in and out, in and out. Sometimes, you know, it takes more than one, two chances. Maybe it takes three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. You know, it took me a lot, a lot of figuring out. Like, what's going on with me? Because when I was growing up, criminal activity was just a normal part of life. I mean, everyone was doing it, right? So you don't even know that you're doing wrong, Mm -hmm. you know? And then when I grew up and people helped, like, I've never dealt with normal people. John Loney is as normal as you can (laughs) get. And he showed me how the way life is, like, how the way actual life works. Sometimes you need people like that in your corner. Like Sean Lone is not, he's not my blood, but he's my family. You know what I mean? I'm an Aboriginal. He was a white man. I've never felt that kind of love from anybody that was white, you know? This guy, man, he changed my life. Man, I don't know how to. The love I have for this guy, man, I mean, so thankful and grateful for what he's done for me, my family. I can feel it. But that's what people need. You know what I mean? People need shots.
0: Yeah. So thank you for sharing all of that.
1: Um, it was my pleasure. You know, seeing is believing mm-hmm. somebody like my old life could see this and see what I'm doing now. What you have to do is, uh, take that first step through that door, man. Happen for you too.
0: Yeah. So something that I kind of think about when I think about the stigma associated with incarceration and criminality is like almost the way that our society is set up is like you said, you know, you do your time, you pay your debt, but so often, and for most people, they come out and there's still this stigma associated with that criminal past. And I think about it as like one of those, hello, my name is name tags that you have to yep. wear all the time. But instead of saying your name or what you would want people to see in you, it says like, you know, spent two years in prison or whatever it was that you did. And
1: it's more like 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a long time. Man.
0: Yeah. And A question that I like to ask everyone on this podcast is if you could go back and take off that name tag and instead it said, rewrite it, and instead it says what it was that you would want people to see in you, what would it say?
1: It would say, uh, say, family man. Family man. It would say, daddy. It would say, brother. Say, best friend somebody that never turned their back on somebody that's willing to take his shirt off his back
0: yeah I see all that well thank you so much Chris before we go I would just love to know if there's anywhere that people can support the work that you're doing work that sounds absolutely incredible where can people find out more and support
1: you would google building urban industries for local development in Winnipeg Manitoba and you'll find links there. And that's a, that's a place you can start at.
0: Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening. It truly means the world that you have taken time out of your day and spent it with us on our mission to shift hearts and minds and the conversation around criminality and incarceration. If you feel as passionately as we do that these stories need to be shared, there are a couple of things you can do to support the show. First, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash thefieldpodcast where you can access more content like this. See you next time. Yeah, I mean, Sean's a really special guy. I met him recently through my mom who, Also is kind of in the social impact space. She started an organization in Toronto about 18 or 20 years ago that diverts youth out of the criminal justice system. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. No
0: way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a really incredible organization. And she used to be a lawyer and just saw that there were so many issues with the justice system. And she went to the to the Yukon and got a chance to spend some time with an indigenous community participating in a sentencing circle and she said wow. like we need to use these circles for everyone like why aren't we using circles to address conflict and so she came back to the city and kind of adapted them to like an urban diverse context and
1: that's where you gotta start with the kids man yeah yeah because the, the, the gang members they prey on kids that's that's their bread and butter comes from because when i was younger Like, I started hustling when I was like 13, 14 years old, you know, Mm -hmm. outside the merchant's hotel. Yeah. It was, it was crazy.
0: Yeah.
1: But your mom doing stuff like that, like, wow, that's where, that's where you need to get them. Like, if I had somebody telling me like 13, 14 years old when I was doing like three months for a theft under 5,000, somebody said, oh, yeah, you can still get a job when you're 16. You can still go to school and nobody will make fun of you. this and that nobody will hold you against it as long as you know which doors to walk through you know what I mean like it would have been so different for me you know
0: yeah and to kind of tell you what's out there beyond what you're hearing in the gang which is like only incentivized to keep you a part of it right yeah so
1: that's amazing yeah Wow.
0: yeah it's great work and she met Sean I guess as a result of the fact that they're both kind of working in a similar space and so when I started this podcast, she was like, you need to speak to Sean Loney. (laughs) So yeah, that guy's going to be
1: the future mayor next year.
0: Yeah. You're, you're doing incredible work together.
1: Yeah. I love that guy, man. You know, he doesn't even know how many people he's affected, man. I mean, like I tried telling them that like a few weeks ago and he's so modest. He's all like, but I've done nothing. It's all these people that's doing the work. Sean Loney. You don't even know, man. So loving that guy. I love that guy.
0: Seriously. And I mean, that's my hope with this is I feel like, I feel like a, such a huge gap is that people in society, like so many people don't ever have exposure to anyone that has, you know, a criminal history that's been incarcerated. And so it's so easy to see the label instead of the human. And to really understand that, like, just like everybody else, we're all human. We all make mistakes. And some of those mistakes look different than other people's. And we all deserve a second chance and an opportunity. And not only is that from a human perspective, the right thing to do, it's also from a community perspective, the right thing to do.
1: Of course. Like, what do you do when you punish your child? You send them to their room all day, all night, or to give them a timeout for 5, 10, 15 minutes and then tell them what was wrong, what they did wrong and how they can correct it. It's the same sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I love that analogy. That's so true. It's like it would be like if you gave your kid, you know, as you said, a timeout, a full day timeout and then they came out and then you just wouldn't speak to them anymore. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It was such a pleasure meeting you.
1: Yeah, thank you.